morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time again for Focus. It's a closer look at people, places, and things. And I often like to say it's things right here in your own backyard that we're investigating. And today, literally so, as we have Dr. John Benitez, and we're talking about the poisons and the toxic things that you can get into in the summertime. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And there's poisons anytime, but summertime brings people out more and certainly get into different things in wintertime. We get out there and start digging around and falling into things. Well, and planting season and then playing season outside and mm-hmm. so forth. So, yes. Well, first of all, tell people a little about yourself so they know who's giving them all this great information. <laughs> okay. Well, my name is John Benitez. I'm the physician. I'm the director of the Tennessee Poison Center, trained in toxicology. Okay. So what are some of the things that people get into that poison them in the summertime or any time? plants and that type of thing. Things that come to mind are poison ivy mm-hmm. and related things. But it's just important to realize that many plants, if not most plants, have some problem with parts or all of them that could be toxic. Like anything else in toxicology is one of those rules of toxicology. It always depends on the dose. So sometimes one bite might not be bad, but two might or 10 might. And it may depend on the part of the plants, acorns and other types of you know nuts and whatever, right. not a problem. Right. But depending on the life stage of the plant, unripe ones sometimes can be an issue. Sometimes the nut might be okay, but the root is not, and variations like that. Well, would you mind if we start with the common ones first? Okay. What to look out for, and maybe even what to do if we encounter that, because I think there are a lot of old wives' tales that are maybe about to get debunked in this interview. Well, I mean, just because an animal eats it doesn't mean it's safe for human. So that's one basic thing, or vice versa. If it's safe for a human, doesn't necessarily mean it's safe for an animal. So in general, they overlap quite a bit as far as what's safe, but not 100%. So we've got to be careful. Yeah. Two just common things, poison ivy. I mean, it's around everywhere. I think just about every state of the union has it. I think maybe Alaska might not, but that's probably, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and maybe Hawaii. I think that might be an exception also. But in general, we don't think of it typically as a poison or something really bad. We just think of it as more obnoxious, you know, because of primarily a rash. That obviously can cause a lot of minor discomfort for some, major discomfort for others. For example, I like to hike and camp and do all kinds of things. I don't, on purpose, don't try to get into poison ivy. But I've never really had poison ivy that I recall. I mean, I've had a rash here and there throughout life, but I'm not sure that it ever was from poison ivy. Mm -hmm. My brother, on the other hand, he's a little wild and crazy. He will actually show off how he doesn't react to poison ivy and will jump into patches of it. One time, it did get him. He developed, after you know rolling in it with his shirt off and the whole bit, he developed a patch of about inch or two inches square on his arm. Yeah. That was it. Some other people would be having trouble breathing and be major sick from that. Oh, kind that's of stuff. severe reaction. So it can be that severe. Some people are very, very sensitive to that. I mean, obviously, if you know that you are, mm-hmm. stay away from it. If you know that you aren't that severe, doesn't mean jump into it like my stupid brother. Keep away and just be safe and not get a rash just for anything that is going to be at least irritating because in general, it's going to itch you know, a lot. Right. What do you do if you've come across poison ivy? What would the symptoms be if it's going to bother you? Well, initially, you may get nothing, and that's the problem. People don't realize that they've gotten onto it, you know, they brushed against a leaf or a stem or, you know, whatever. Okay. So the safest thing is is recognizing what it looks like so that you can recognize that you've been onto it. If you do get it, wash it off, soap and water as soon as you can. It's the oil, the resin that's on the surface of the leaf, the stems, the bark, and it gets on you, and it takes a little bit of 
enough time to start that reaction. Oh. You know, just because you touched it with your hand, the rash may stay locally in the hand, but it can certainly spread and all of a sudden your whole body reacts to it and you'll get a rash throughout your whole body, mm-hmm. even though you only touched it with your hand. How long is there like an incubation period? Well, it takes some time. In some people, it can be a matter of minutes. In some people, it could be a matter of several hours to even the next day when they really notice the rash. What do you do about it? <laughs> Pee on it, right? <laughs> That's like the old wives' remedy for everything. Well, not quite. I mean, <laughs> there is that story for some other things, but not for plants. <laughs> this is Dr. John Benitez. He's the director of the Tennessee Poison Center. That's why we're asking him, what do you do for poison ivy? The official word. Okay. So basically... Basically, I mean, you know, once you recognize you've touched it at least, even before symptoms, is wash it. Once it starts a reaction, you start getting the rash, assuming that's all it is and it's just uncomfortable, you can treat the symptoms of itching by taking an antihistamine. And there's lots of over-the-counter antihistamines. You can certainly call us, you can call your family doctor and check as to what's recommended. But basically, it's taking an antihistamine that will tend to minimize the reaction to some degree, as well as the symptoms of the itch so that you're not scratching and tearing up your skin by scratching too much. Okay. Now, can I ask you this? And you may or may not have an answer because I'm kind of putting you on the spot. It's a little bit of an angle here. Do antihistamines always make you sleepy? Well, they can. They advertise different ones, less likely to do that. And the key is less likely. Okay. They all can do that. That's good to know. Okay. So we've dealt with poison ivy. Is there a certain degree of if it gets so bad? Well, if it just gets that uncomfortable that you're just scratching, the antihistamine doesn't help. There are certainly certain lotions you can apply that have, you know, some cortisone or related type substances. But again, if those are not helping or if you know you're one of the severe types of people that react to this stuff, you know, you probably will have to call your doctor. They probably already know you or hopefully know you that you have that kind of reaction. They can certainly give you uh, shots, whether it be, again, a shot in the rear end, on the arm, wherever it's appropriate that has higher potency, if you will, uh, steroid or cortisone type of a thing. Okay. Maybe even an injectable antihistamine to start with to really try to get under control. And then they may even put you on what's called a dose pack. And again, there's different brands, but basically it's a high potency pill type steroid that for the first two, three, four days will give you a high dose of steroids to again, get control of the situation and minimize the reaction. Poison oak, probably the same thing? Poison oak, poison sumac are very uh, similar, very related species. They tend to grow slightly different locations depending where in the country we're talking about. But basically, it's the same issue. It's got this oily resin on the surfaces. You get it onto your skin. You you know start reacting the same basic way, and you treat it exactly the same way. What are some of the other things that we might encounter that we don't realize might be poisonous? The less common one is poison hemlock, which by name, you know, sounds poisonous. Yeah. It does grow by the roadside. It looks like many other kind of weeds. It has a smell like a wild carrot. And some people may mistake it for a wild carrot that I'm aware of, at least in the last two and a half years or so that I've been in Tennessee, we haven't had any cases of that, which is good. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of those potential ones that can cause a lot of severe toxicity. When people are poisoned by it, is it because they thought it was a wild carrot and ate it? Usually it's because they thought it was something uh, like a wild carrot and they ate it by mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about the things in our yards and along the sides of the path as we're walking our dog that the animal might encounter? Or there are little kids or, or little you know, kids or, yeah. In general, still the same basic kinds of things. We've got, you know, poison ivy that will grow anywhere, whether it be urban, suburban, or rural. Mm-hmm. You'll find poison ivy everywhere. 
there's always, you know, the plants that we plant in our homes or by the... The ornamental type the ornamental things. plants. And of those, top of my head real quick, foxglove is a ornamental flower plant mm-hmm. that is usually planted by seed. You can certainly buy, you know, little seedlings already mm-hmm. and plant them in your yard. But that's where they make one of the heart medications from that plant. And so it will definitely affect the heart in animals as well as kids. What about poke? Are you familiar with that? Oh, yes. Pokeweed, very common again. We see it especially in that spring, summertime. It's got the purple stems. Kids love to get into them. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware specifically of animals or which species of animals may get into problems, but I wouldn't be surprised if one or more do. I know birds eat them because you start seeing pink spots on your cars. On your car, your wall, or your outside walls of your house, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I like it. I eat it as a spring green. Right. You have to be careful. If you eat the leaves or too much of the stem, you may get into some problems with upsetting the stomach and people get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And it's one of those that you basically just treat them symptomatically until things pass. Usually if it's very early in the greens where they're still immature, there's enough of the chemical in them that will trigger that reaction. There's also a thing called parboiling. Some people make like a boiled greens, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the right term is. Mm-hmm. My understanding or what should be done is you boil it, you pitch the water because some of the poison will come out in the water. Mm-hmm. Then you boil it again. And then you pitch the water because that kind of helps with getting rid of the poison. So what's left is the leafy part only mm-hmm. and without the poison so that it doesn't cause problems. problem with eating greens as in a salad is that they're usually fresh and it just depends on the stage of development of the plant. True. It can lower part of your blood count if you eat enough of that. So that's the other issue that we can find and get into. Lower part of your what? Lower parts of your white blood cell count. A specific subset of cells, it will actually lower your what's called the lymphocytes. Yeah. of your blood. It will actually lower your, your blood count for that particular type of cell. So what does it do? What does that do to you? Well, lowering it a little bit is probably no big deal because it's just a short-term transient type of a thing. You know, you eat a salad one day, maybe put berries or whatever in it, yeah. and it may lower your count, you know, again, for a day or two type thing. Mm-hmm. If you were doing this every day for a long period of time, it could set you up for certain types of infections potentially. Oh, my goodness. So if we have any questions about that, if I called the Tennessee Poison Center, would they be able to talk me through? Absolutely. Whether- and that's that's the thing to do with these things. So, you know, anytime you have a question with any plant, call the Poison Center. You just call 1-800-222-1222, and it will work anywhere in the state, and it will reach us. We're open 24-7. And we can certainly answer any questions regarding these plants. Obviously, if we primarily deal with humans, so but we every now and then we do get calls on pets also. Mm-hmm. We try to answer those most of the time for pets. We'll try to refer you to either your veterinarian, and there are two national animal poison control centers. Really? And so we try to refer you to those so that they can answer more specific questions there. Do you have a website that somebody could go to if yeah. they wanted to do a little research and on their on own? Our, on our website, we have some local contact information. It's got links for some of our literature, mm-hmm. but there's a listing of some of the poisonous and the non-poisonous plants. And our website basically is just tnpoisoncenter.org. I hate seeing this list. I'm so disappointed now because half of the things on the list that I have in there are poison, like the azaleas. Of course, I probably wouldn't eat it, but just in case. <laughs> but that's how we had the list. Again, the average person is not going to get into most of these plants. Yes. But, you know, if you have kids, if you have pets, it's nice to know that they could be poisonous. I like the thought 
of being able to go out into the garden and pick some poke green, some pokeweed, and pick some dandelion, and pick some of this, and some of chickweed, and that sort of thing, and make my own salads. And does that just drive you crazy when you hear people talk no, like and that? I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people that do. I don't think it's just you. And there's at least two others. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially or, if you were seeing somebody or, for eating 2,000 or 2 million more. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people that do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. I mean, you know, where, where does it normal plants that we get, spinach and so forth? They still come sure. from the ground anymore. We buy it more from farmers and so forth. It's kind of grown for us. But there's a lot of people, my wife included, likes to grow some of her own whatever, mm-hmm. wild or, or, or not. And the thing is just really knowing and being educated as to what it is that you're picking, being very comfortable in knowing what you're picking, and then the right way to prepare it. Are there things that we should be doing to make ourselves healthier and more likely to withstand it if we have an accidental poisoning or encounter something that causes some yeah. sort of reaction? Well, I mean, in general, it's just that maintaining that healthy lifestyle, I think. Eating no certain, healthy, no living certain. healthy, don't overdo on any one thing. I mean, I'm not saying don't partake of any vice. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want to smoke because that sets you up again from an infection standpoint. It sets you up for certain diseases diseases, uh-huh. uh, you know, all these kinds of things. But you want to do everything in moderation. I mean, we keep hearing in the press, you know, that such and such can cause disease. Well, sometimes too much of something can cause disease, but also just as important, too little of some things can also cause disease. But it's that whole concept of living the healthy lifestyle to try to maintain a healthy balance of everything, you know, bone structure, allergies, uh, etc. Overall, is there one step that we should take if we think we've ingested some sort of a poison? Is there always just a basic thing? Because years ago, the traditional thought was, well, get the poison back out. But now we know that can cause damage going out. Good question. There used to be a substance called Ipecac that you could buy in pharmacies. It was in many first aid kits. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much going out of favor because although it makes you vomit, mm-hmm. the thought is it doesn't really get enough of the toxin out or enough of the poisonous substance of the plant or fruit or whatever. Right. And so it just makes you a little bit sicker. Remember, for a lot of these plants, they make you vomit as a first step of whatever. Oh. So it's not really adding anything to the treatment. The other thought, and it's still also available over the counter, is activated charcoal. Right. And although for a few select things, it might make a difference, in general, it doesn't. And so if you have it or if you think about taking something... Call us first, because that's exactly what we'll do. We'll guide you through what you should or shouldn't do. Most of the time, we'll tell you, don't induce vomiting, whether it be by that Ipecac or by sticking a finger in the back of your throat or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Usually, we're going to tell you 99% of the time, don't do that. Okay. And if you have charcoal or you're thinking about getting charcoal, most of the time, we're going to tell you, don't do that either. And then based on what you ate, based on the symptoms, what the plant is, we're going to tell you, stay home, sit it out, so to speak. Or if the symptoms get bad enough, we will certainly tell you to go see your doctor, go to the emergency department, and then we'll be telling the your doctor or the emergency department what to do about it if there's any specific care that needs to be done for that. What about milk? Milk? Probably not. For some things, we may tell you to take milk. But for some things, it may worsen problems. It all depends on how that poison works and what it's going to do to your body. If there's a poison, for example, that's going to make you sleepy or drowsy or truly put you to sleep and you drink something or somebody makes you drink something, you're going to start vomiting and not protecting your throat. You know, normally you protect your throat and things go down the right way. Well, this time you might vomit and you might end up with milk going down into your lungs. Not a good idea. Causes lots of problems. Oh my goodness. So you have to be careful as I'm saying. Before you do anything, call us and we'll guide you through step by step for what you need to do. And the number again? It's 1-800-222-1222. 1-800-222-1222. It's the Tennessee Poison Center. And the website again? And the website is TN, as in Tennessee, Poison Center, all one word, 
org. O-R-G. All right. Thank you, Dr. Benitez. Okay. No problem. Our next guest is Frank Hale. Uh, he's the uh, entomology professor with the UT Extension. Welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here, Anna. Now, we're going to have to tell people, first of all, what you'll be talking about today. Well, I'm an entomologist. That means I deal with insects. Whee! And most of these insects that you see in your backyard, they don't hurt you. They're just there. I don't consider them good bugs, bad bugs. They're just insects. So one of the things we've been talking about, and I thought we would touch on it lightly, is cicadas. People say they hear cicadas all the time. So there's a 13-year brood, and then there's other broods? There are some 17-year broods. These are called the periodical cicadas. The cicada you're used to hearing every summer, and some people call them locusts, but they're not really locusts exactly. But cicadas were something that they only had here in the New World. They didn't have them in Europe. The ones we see in the summer, though, are called the dog day cicadas. Just think the dog days of summer. Mm-hmm. It's real hot in July and August. And they're a bigger black and green cicada. They're a lot bigger. But those, they actually have a several-year life cycle. It might be three years or so. Depends. But they're staggered, so you always have some every oh, summer. Oh, I thought so. The good thing is each one of those cicadas has proteins in it. And in that protein, they have nitrogen. Think of it like an organic fertilizer. As these decompose, all those little exit holes in the soil, their bodies are washed down into those holes, down to the roots. And actually, it fertilizes the forest. So you can see a noticeable change in the forest. It gets a little greener. Oh, my. That is fascinating. A lot of dogs try and eat the cicadas. They just love them. And I read somewhere, and it might have been that you said this, that you shouldn't let dogs, or was it a vet who had said this, you shouldn't let dogs eat too many because the exoskeletons aren't digestible. In general, veterinarians say that they're not toxic. It's just like anything if you eat too much of something. Dogs will gorge themselves. Yeah. They'll just get an upset tummy. They'll have to vomit to get rid of them. But it's not really going to hurt anything. Now, I want to talk a little more generally about some of the things that we see every year. First thing in the spring, we start seeing one insect, and then there's another one, and it's like, oh, my goodness, and now the ants or whatever. Well, Give us a timeline. Well, the first thing I, I receive as an entomologist, I start getting calls towards the end of the winter, and they'll ask me, you know, it was a really cold winter this year. Do you think that's going to affect the insects coming out this year? And it affects some insects a little bit, some more than others, but in general... These insects are very well acclimated to our climate. You know, we have mosquitoes up in Canada and up in Alaska, some of the worst mosquitoes you ever see. You don't have to go to the tropics. We have mosquitoes from the equator all the way up to Alaska. That's right. I've heard that mosquitoes in Alaska are big as a helicopter or well, something. Well, <laughs> and they, they eat you up because their summertime is very short. So they have to come out, they have to get their blood meal, and then they have to lay their eggs in a short period of time. So it's all kind of compressed. So that's really, mm-hmm. uh, it's a feast or famine thing. They're really coming wow. out. So all these insects are acclimated all sorts of even colder temperatures than we get. So cold, real cold winter, so probably So for the not. most part, now we do have things like imported fire ants that are from South America that have moved into Tennessee. Cold winters will knock a lot of those back. You might have 75% or more of the mounds that will die. But remember, those mounds are in the soil. They're somewhat insulated from the cold. Mm-hmm. But even if you get rid of 90, 95% of the mounds, they'll reproduce and you'll have more ant mounds by the end of the summer. They catch up. Insects have the ability to reproduce very quickly. They can lay a lot of eggs. For instance, mosquitoes. Right now, you get a lot of rain in the spring. The main thing that's driving the mosquitoes is the temperature, warm weather, 
and lots of standing water. And some mosquitoes will reproduce in a bottle cap or just a little bit of water, just a cup laying by the side of the road. You can have lots of mosquitoes coming out of that. So one of the main things we tell people about controlling mosquitoes in neighborhoods is pick up the trash. Mm Mm-hmm. Any kind of container, anything that can hold water, old cans, check your gutters that they don't have, you know, clogged up and holding water. I was thinking about that because I have mosquitoes at my house and I can't find any standing water. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's the rain gutter there that always kind of leaks. Could be holding water and and it only needs maybe 10 days or so, maybe even less water to go through a life cycle. Wow. Because the immature mosquitoes are aquatic and then they come out of the water and uh, start biting people. Mm -hmm, Immediately. So first thing in the spring, you've ruled out that a cold winter will kill off all the bugs. That no, does we're still really going to have insects. Away. And so sure. then it seems like the first thing in the spring, maybe one of the first insects that I saw that I really noticed was the wasps. And I remember thinking, mm-hmm. that's really early for yeah, them, is a, it? A lot of these insects, like the wasp and bees and hornets and things, remember that wasp you see is essentially a queen. She's the only one that overwintered. And often they'll overwinter in your attics, someplace that's a little tempered a little bit, not oh. quite as cold. And so as your attic warms up in the spring, they fly out and they start looking for a new place to build their nest. Mm-hmm. And so that individual queen will start making her little paper nest under your, the eaves of your house or wherever. And at that time, she's looking for protein. They need protein to feed to their larvae that they start building their nest. Then those larvae develop into new worker wasps, and those females then will help her make a bigger nest. Mm -hmm. So early in the season, they're going after protein, yellow jackets, wasps, hornets. Later in the season, they want carbohydrate. They want sugar. That's why they go for your lemonade, your soda pop, things like that Oh, the the hummingbird feeder, too. Yeah, everything. Because once you get a big population of workers, you need carbohydrate energy. So they're really beneficial to eat caterpillars and other insects. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. They're part of the uh, ecology of the area. And what about the mayflies or something like that? I can't think of... Well, we see every spring in the grass, you notice these things look like giant mosquitoes. Yes. We call them crane flies. Crane flies. The larva is called a leather jacket. It's a little larval thing. It's kind of grayish, and they're in the ground, in the soil. And then the adult crane flies that come out, people think they're mosquitoes, Mm -hmm. but most of them don't even feed as adults. They might not even have adult mouth parts. Oh, wow. Or if they do, they feed on nectar flowers or something. But they're pretty harmless. Okay. Some years you'll see thousands of those. Another Mm -hmm. thing you see early spring, as it warms up, you get those warm days, you often see ticks. Yeah. Ticks aren't insects, but they're closely related. They are eight-legged, and they're going to be out and about. And, of course, they're looking for mice small mammals, lizards, things like that to feed on. Some will get on deer and other animals, and some will get on humans. Mm-hmm. In the early spring is when it warms up, they become active. Mm-hmm. So whenever you get a warm day, insects will become more active. So we can get warm days back in February, March. True. Oh, you know, I see. You can get up in the 70s, and you could be out in the woods hunting or hiking and have ticks on you. Just check yourself once or twice a day. Now, if you do find a tick that's sometimes they'll just be crawling on you. Uh-huh. Or, you know, you go to bed and you feel something crawl, it's a tick. Well, just throw them away, yeah. flush them down the toilet. But if you have one that's actually feeding on you, that means its mouth parts are embedded in your skin. Mm-hmm. Get a tweezers or a forceps and get it as close to the skin where the mouth parts as possible. Kind of press into the skin, squeeze just on the mouth parts. You don't want to squeeze the main body oh. and pull steady pressure straight out. 
what you want to do is get all the mouth parts to come out with the tick. If that gets stuck in the skin, you can get an infection. The reason you want to get ticks off your body as quick as possible, some ticks can transmit diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, these are fairly low. Most people don't get them. You know, thousands of people get bit by ticks every summer. Just a handful of people might get a serious disease. Mm -hmm. But uh, you want to get them off the body as quick as possible. Then wash with soap and water. You can disinfect with alcohol. But the main thing, if you've been bit by mosquitoes or ticks or anything, and let's say within the next month you get high fever, you get really sick, Mm -hmm. let your doctor know that you did have a tick on me. Because there are some tick-borne or mosquito-borne diseases that can give those type symptoms, like flu-like symptoms. Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain yeah, spotted ro- fever, all yeah, those. We, have, uh, we do have Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is transmitted primarily by the American dog tick, which we do have in Tennessee. And we do have some of the black-legged ticks or deer ticks that can transmit Lyme disease. But in surveys, we have not found the infectious agent in any of these deer ticks mm-hmm. that causes Lyme disease. And what about chiggers? Chiggers are a little tiny mite, and what they will do when they bite on your skin, they actually feed on the cells. Mm. And often what they'll do, your body makes a response to that feeding. It's like an allergic response yeah, kind of? Yeah, sort of allergic, and that's what makes it itch. So usually when you take a bath or soap, or, you know, just wash off with soap and mm-hmm. water, that removes the chigger. But he's already bit you, and it already makes that response. It will itch for a week or more, several weeks. Oh, okay. Now, um, I think this is probably pretty gross because I think I learned this before, is that when a chigger gets on you, tell me if I'm mistaken, does it put some of its saliva inside your skin to dissolve the skin and then kind of suck it back out? Is that how it feeds? Yeah, often they will have digestive enzymes in the saliva that will cause the breakdown of cells and Mm -hmm. stuff, and then they will feed on those cell contents. It's not like that. It's like they make a little soup kind of? A little bit. Some insects will do that. They'll kind of dissolve tissue. So people say to put nail polish on it and all that. The thing is probably gone at that point. Yeah. We don't recommend the nail polish. Just ask your pharmacist for topical ointments Mm -hmm. that might help. Try not to scratch it because what that does, you're making a bigger wound. Bacteria is going to get on there. Mm -hmm. There's bacteria on your skin all the time, and you're going to be rubbing it in there, and then you can get a little secondary infection. We're talking with entomology professor Frank Hale with the UT Extension, and I just want to make sure and have it from your mouth that when you have the little bumps, the chiggers are not inside there. Yeah, if you take a soapy bath, that's going to remove any chigger. It's just your own body. It's a sort of allergic reaction. It's a, a, yeah. a dermatitis type reaction. Okay. What about a brown recluse spiders? Do we have a problem with that? or is it Well, like it can more than... be usually in older homes, often in barns and places like that, storage areas mm-hmm. outside. They usually like uh, buildings. If you had a plywood board that was up against the wall that could be behind there. Mm-hmm. They like to be places that they aren't disturbed. Mm-hmm. Behind a big file cabinet that you haven't moved in 10 years. Places that you don't really get to vacuum and clean. So mm-hmm. one thing you can do in your house is just move things out, occasionally vacuum and any spider eggs, vacuum them up. But uh, most people get them not that they just walk in the house. They get them when they bring them into the house. Oh, Let's say you had some boxes stored at your grandmother's house up in the attic. That old country house might have had brown recluse spiders. Grandma lived with them fine and didn't bother. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring those boxes back then, put them in your garage. Guess what? The brown recluse spider might be hitchhiking in that box, and mm-hmm. then you can introduce them to your garage. Why are people so afraid of them? Well, they can bite, and some people get a bad reaction. It's a small percent of the population. The worst case would be we've seen deaths. 
Oh, it's, from brown it, recluse. Yeah, it's a, it affects the tissue of the body, and it causes it to necrose or break down. And sometimes it'll get in the bloodstream and sort of go systemic on it. Oh. Let's say if somebody, a, a very young child or a, a somebody that wasn't real healthy, to fight it off. But for the most part, the biggest problem most of the time would be sunken sore. Mm-hmm. It start hurting. It'll get necrotic. It means it start to rot a little bit. Mm-hmm. It'll sink down, often go almost to the bone. In those cases, you might have to go to the doctor, and they might even have to do a skin graft. Mm-hmm. Most folks that get bit by a brown recluse spider doesn't get that bad. Oh, most people. See, I think probably a lot of people believed it, that if you get bitten by a brown recluse, bad, bad stuff's going to happen. So it's possible. It's possible. But it's not but certain. No, it's it's just a small percent, just like the ticks. A very tiny percent of the people get any kind of complications from getting bit by a tick. Mm-hmm. What about a black widow spider? Black widow spider also has a toxin, a venom, but it's more of a neurotoxin. So it affects your nervous system a little bit more. In general, if you see you're bitten by a black widow mm-hmm. or a brown recluse, either one, you probably want to just call your doctor up and let them know and see if they want to see you come in and check you out anyway. Both those bites can be very painful. Mm -hmm. So most people get bit by spiders. A lot of different spiders will bite you. Mostly it's like a mosquito bite. It itches. And that's the typical spider. But some have a venom that reacts more with us. Two different type venoms, though. The brown recluse causes the skin necrosis or mm-hmm. breakdown of the cells, and the black widow more of a, affects the nervous system and the nerves. Anything else? Because we're about out of time. We're talking today with entomology professor Frank Hale with the UT Extension. Anything else? No, just use common sense. Don't be out at dusk when the mosquitoes are out unless you have some repellent on. Protect yourself. Wear long sleeves if you have to. And you don't. You want to limit the number of bites you get. Because there's always that potential you could get a disease like oh, a West sure. Nile encephalitis or we have lacrosse encephalitis, several different diseases you don't want to get. Right. They're low incidence, but still you don't want all those mosquito bites. Same with ticks. When you're out and about, check yourself when you get home. Make sure you don't have any ticks on you when you take a bath or shower. Mm-hmm. Just use some common sense and enjoy the outdoors in Tennessee. Professor Frank Hale with University of Tennessee Extension Service. All the things you've ever wanted to know about bugs. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Our wonderful Focus editor and producer is Zach Troutman. I want to make sure I mention him. Make sure you join us next Sunday. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus. Focus.